0: Today, you're not really a sovereign citizen online. You are essentially a serf of whatever cloud service you're using, be it Google, be it Facebook, be it Amazon, etc. You use your computer basically just as a very fancy client to other people's servers.
1: Christian Langalis is the resident Bitcoin ambassador to the Erbit team. His motto is “Sound money requires sound computing." And this well describes his role to develop Bitcoin infrastructure for the Urbit ecosystem. Christian’s interest in Urbit derives from a desire for a sound foundation on which Bitcoin can operate. He makes the argument that for all its potential, Bitcoin cannot offer the benefits of sound money, sound being a term that requires specific definition in this case, without a sound computing platform on which to operate. Unix sysadmins have access to this today, but that leaves the future unevenly distributed. More than just a piece of Bitcoin infrastructure, Christian sees Urbit as a response to the shift towards unowned software and data caused by the popularity of software-as-a-service and content streaming platforms. He also sees the platform as an opportunity for individuals to access the full power of server computing, instead of having to rent individual functionalities from subscription-based services. In this vein, Christian views data harvesting and the pursuit of user attention as deep personal abuses in a way that recalls Galen's reference to Stockholm Syndrome in episode one. My name
0: is Christian Legalis. I'm uh a been working with Urbit for a few months now, primarily to integrate Bitcoin into the Urbit operating system. And so this is done a handful of ways. So, interacting with Bitcoin nodes directly, so you can have the full sovereignty of a fully validating Bitcoin node, just a regular Bitcoin wallet that can be in Bitcoin payment apps for Urbit. Atomic swaps, so you can trade Bitcoin directly for an Urbit address, uh, and then beyond that, we'll eventually get into Lightning nodes, so you can interact with uh, micro payments or you know rapid payments on the Lightning network. Ultimately, uh, you know a store that's Bitcoin enabled. So think of a, a Woo if you will, for Urbit or a BTC pay server is also a very good model to work from. And then ultimately, ultimately we'd like to see a peer to peer exchange hosted on Urbit as a, as a protocol. You have, you know, HODL, HODL uh, you have BISC, you have local Bitcoins, but you know, each of them has strengths and weaknesses. And, uh, I would say a common weakness among them is that they don't have strong reputational data that isn't either centralized uh, or n- not exactly civil resistant. So uh, with Erbit identities uh, being scarce digital assets that you can credibly connect to Bitcoin transactions, you can you have the substrate for what could be a very good uh, system of digital reputation that's based on past transactions. So the the hope would be to make an exchange that could process people's transactions from a decentralized order book, and then have the account of those transactions, you know, the reputation on the basis of those transactions be be stored. Uh, you know, through the Erbit identity system.
1: And so why is this possible with Erbit where it wasn't possible before?
0: It's simply that the namespace of Erbit, that each of those, that my planet name, for example, is a cryptographic asset. And so we we can keep these, you know, provably scarce. And also uh, because they are cryptographic assets related through, bip thirty two and bip thirty nine uh, wallet wallet structures, you can credibly sh- demonstrate that they have been related to other uh, related to other cryptographic assets at some point in their life in their lifetime.
1: Okay, cool. So um with all that covered, what is, like, what is it about Urbit that you find compelling and what brought you to the project? Oh, sure. So my interest with
0: Urbit certainly derived out of a, a certain nationalism for Bitcoin <laughs> and a desire to see Bitcoin used in a self-sovereign manner. I was loosely acquainted with the project beforehand. And my initial interest was to create a better peer-to-peer Bitcoin uh, exchange And when I began looking into how to do this, I realized, uh, okay, here are the flaws of given peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchanges. It usually uh, revolves around one of two things. Either it's difficult to operate a personal server. So this is sort of the BISC failure mode because you're serving your your order book to the rest of the network. And, And so the BISC is decentralized, but difficult to operate. And then there's the easy to operate, but centralized way, which is hodl, hodl. And and I'll be clear, I have deep and abiding respect for all parties involved in both of those projects. So it's not a dig on them, but simply uh, that we have yet to establish the full suite of tools that were originally envisioned under call it the the theory of online digital sovereignty or crypto anarchy, if you will. So Tim May talks about all the different building blocks that lead to a sovereign online experience. And so encryption is number one, right? And then from there, you can do things like create digital monies, like Bitcoin. Uh, But then beyond that, you know, we're still many building blocks away from being fully you know, self-owned online. And so one of those building blocks is having an immutable digital pseudonym that you can accumulate reputation under. So that's very much what I perceive the urbit identity scheme to be. And that's the urbit network to me. And so when I learned more about that network, uh, I thought you know this is the ideal substrate to form some type of decentralized protocol for exchanging bitcoins that doesn't rely on a centralized uh, authority to determine you know, people's people's identity or credibility, and that it could be based purely on a emergent reputation as generated by the individual peers.
1: So for you. What's really powerful about Urbit is it gives us the ability to have a, um, a digital pseudonym that can accrue reputation. Oh, I'll go grab another bottle and then we'll get the stuck
0: back in Yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, just go down the line. There we go. go. Whoa.
1: What is that Chardonnay? I have no idea, but it's, I mean, uh, it doesn't say Vignetti Ma. Say it's anything. from Italy. Yeah, so it's probably, I'm, I'm always skeptical of old world wines, but.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um oh yeah cuz New Zealand has budding wine industry so in new, the same yeah. way that California was established in 1971 and it's and it's and, done. <laughs> and it was only then that you know the judgment of Paris had just dropped what's that the judgment of Paris was a wine tasting competition between the big french names the the old house the wine houses the and the new upstarts in California. And it was always considered that French wines were the the standard for good wine and that everything else in the world had, by definition, to be inferior. Uh, And yet, through this blind taste test uh, that was conducted by a panel of judges, the Californian wines actually beat these... French heavyweight wines. And uh, it completely jumbled perceptions in the wine connoisseur community about what could constitute good wine, you know, what was possible in terms of wine culture. And uh, I think it really led to the explosion of, call it, viticultural internationalism, where countries like Argentina, Chile, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa were all permitted to being or not even permitted, but they were just able to uh, sell their wines abroad for the first time. So what's that called, the Paris? The Judgment of Paris. The Judgment of Paris. The Judgment of Paris. Judgment of Paris. Yeah, I mean, it was, the, fa- the fact is that the panel of judges, by their own criteria, deemed that the... Superior wine in the red and white categories was from California, so it it unseated the uh, you know the the Bordeaux's and the Burgundies of of France that were you know are considered like the best
1: wines in the world. The subject of taste is something that I find is comes up repeatedly, especially aesthetics in discussions of verbi. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that there is some parallel there? Do you feel that the um, the Paris judgment can be in some way associated with Erbit um, and the notion of new a new computing paradigm? Sure. I would say there is a certain newness to
0: entirely functional operating systems in that I don't think there have really been any except for... No, I don't think Temple OS was functional. So yeah, I think Erbit would, would be the first viable candidate for a functional operating system. And indeed, very much poised against the establishment of uh, Linux or Unix, you know, etc. So it's a great question, but I I very much think that the taste aspect is key here as most of what (laughs) Urbit has to overcome is not the actual functional components of what the computer does, but more the attitude towards how the computer does it. So um, just like, you know, Californian wines, you know, get you drunk and, uh, you know, taste taste good, uh, you know, there's there's still presiding attitudes about, you know, what is the right way to go about, right way to go about something. Some people say, you know, you should continue to refine what already works, whereas Urbit very much opens up new soil and says, we, we can start from scratch, essentially. We can, we can be out here on the edge of the Western world and put down new roots.
1: Do you feel like Urbit is the expression of some kind of deep cultural um, um, movement or budding cultural movement inside Silicon Valley?
0: Uh, hmm, inside Silicon Valley, no, since I don't think that Urbit is in or of Silicon Valley. I mean, certainly its founders live here, are from here, but I think that Urbit is, uh, you know, native to the net more than to, you know, the, the garage in Cupertino or whatever. Urbit is generated I think very much in reaction to what the internet became whereas other companies perhaps provided a more uh, a more positive vision for for what they wanted to build of course these visions have led to the centralization of the web and the utter unusability of the personal computer for any other task than just downloading stuff you know streaming you stream everything you stream your email you stream youtube videos you stream netflix you stream google docs it's all streaming and it's it's a one-way street uh it takes a certain amount of it's it's more of a reaction against that that you you think critically why why is it like this why don't I have the ability to really, ro- in a robust sense, to put files out there for other people to access, even though the hardware is next to free? So why don't we? Why don't we? It's because it's too hard. It's literally too complicated. I, I'm, I consider myself you know, a computer user who is tech literate and motivated, though I didn't study computer science in school beyond CS 101. I took CS 101. So I I at least know my way around a computer. I mean, I was unable to set up my own email server. Perhaps that's a testament to my own stupidity, but I think more likely it's a testament to the fact that the internet is intensely complex and maintaining any degree of self-ownership, Online is, you know, next to impossible. So I think that even in Bitcoin, this is, this is a good litmus test. Even in Bitcoin, people that are not only tech savvy, but acquainted with the urgency to have self-ownership of their data. Most Bitcoiners I know still have Gmail addresses. You know, why is this? Because it's easy. Because it's easy, and not just because it's easy, but because the alternative is hard. Google grew t- to the to the heights that it is at now because they are the people that make it not hard. They ended up, you know, running away with the show and making it easy. But you know, their their only mandate was, you know, make this not difficult. Or you know Outlook, the alternative email clients as well. But uh, the the point is that they don't they don't so much make it easy as they just make it not hard. Um, it's so hard to to operate any type of personal server that unless you literally studied it in school, you're gonna bare your head in your hands and uh, give up, as I did. As I did in uh, 2015 when I made my... No, excuse me, 2013 when I made my personal website and I was like, I want to be Christian at com. I was so fixed on this from just an aesthetic standpoint. I was like, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. Again, it may be that I'm stupid, but I, I failed to do it. And the fact that so many other competent people... Don't do this. You know, you'd think that at least uh, a good handful of them would if it were in any way, you know, next to convenient. Even Bitcoin core devs that I know have Gmail accounts. Bro, you're, you're working on this self-sovereign money on one hand. But then on the other hand, you're still a serf. You're still a peasant on Google's little enclosure. Willingly. Willingly. I mean, w- willingly or, or unwillingly, you either don't have the bandwidth or the, the motivation to undertake, you know, the reclamation of your social life from these companies. And of course, also that I, I can't totally discount you know, the network effect, that if you're even in that intolerant minority, if everyone else who's in your social circle is in a position where you know Gmail is the only option, uh, then you don't really have a choice. You elect to use the the large centralized uh, data silo. So how do you how do you align the interests of making money, being profitable, and also maintaining a respect for the the data sovereignty of your users? the current web does not have an answer for this literally so f- take the privacy messaging apps for example you have signal you have telegram you have keybase these are all run by donations they are not they are not companies in the traditional sense in fact it's you know signal telegram may not be domiciled in the united states but i know that at least signal is Literally a 501c3. It's a nonprofit. They are funded by donations. Telegram funded by Pavel Durov, just his largess. Keybase, I'm not sure on, but I can imagine it's similar. If you do not harvest data from your users, you don't make any money. The question is how can you how can you make a system where it's perhaps profitable to give your users access to a network where they are sovereign. Very much I believe that Urbit is the network to do this. Where even if you're just selling address space, if you buy a star which you know has a preset number of planets underneath it, you're even if you're just selling those as you would, there's property, selling them away, all of those people can then network under those addresses and you know, the operating system is free you can do whatever you want with that once you have well, you can do whatever you want with herbit once you have a, ne- a network address the way the herbit namespace works is it essentially bootstraps a a private you know alternative to the dns where early investors can subsidize the development of the operating system by purchasing these this address space they can then finance themselves you know, they can they can generate a return on their investment by, you know, just giving people access to this very wholesome piece of software, unabusive piece of software.
1: Unabusive, what do you mean?
0: Unabusive. You know, Google, uh, Google tracks you wherever you go. They even read your emails. You know that. Some people don't. <laughs> Gmail reads your emails. They do text analysis on the things you send. They generate... You know, ads based on your interests. So, you know, if they have their if they have your emails on your server, why wouldn't they why wouldn't they read them? Why wouldn't they run them through their algorithm? You know, Urbit will never do this and literally cannot do this. So Urbit will never be monetized by you know sale of user data unless a user explicitly sells it and is paid for it this is really the i i think a more a more just way and a more transparent way of monetizing whatever internet services exist as long as i can own it you know that feels good our conversation moved on to the subject of the app industry you know just constant pop-ups constant advertising constant uh just a constant stream of uh of of input and incidentally this is all this is also how they monetize their apps you know just putting all this stuff in their face because the the valuation of these types of applications are all predicated on well how much time does the user spend on your app if you can make your app more addictive you can have people on it for longer therefore you can serve them more ads Therefore, you can make more money. You know, very basic equation. If you have a computer, if you have an operating system, an interface that prioritizes the user, puts them first. You know, it's a humane thing to, you know, be given a piece of information by your computer, and then you know, your computer sits idle, like the tool that it is. When you're hanging a, a picture, and you use the drill to drill into the wall, or the or the hammer, or the screwdriver, you know these things don't say like "ding, ding, 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 ding." Uh, hey, have you uh, upgraded to uh, Hammer Pro? You know, uh, you know, or here's a uh, watch this 15 second ad, and you can like pound in that nail. Very much, we we want to return intelligent circuitry. <laughs> to the status of being a dumbass tool which is what it is it's what it was supposed to be that you could just leverage computation to administrate things in your life administrate as in the agency is on the side of the user <laughs> and not the side of the tool and because we have you know these we, because we're under this priesthood of programmers where they, they're the only people that know what can, an app can even be. You know, They're the only people that uh, can make these types of apps. They are naturally profit-driven. They want to be Silicon Valley millionaires. And so they come up with all sorts of ways to monetize those applications. And uh, this is almost always at the expense of the user's attention. And so let's have a computer that you can you know, buy once and use forever, and it's just yours, and there will be no more, no more pestering. The end of the
1: attention economy starts with herbit. We then moved on to discuss the notion of soundness, In the context of both money and computing, sound money deserves
0: a sound computer. What this essentially means, I guess it revolves around the definition of the word word sound, which I take as auditable, somehow verifiable. Bitcoin is sound money because its supply properties are fully auditable. They say gold is sound money because. Even though you can't audit the supply of gold, you have strong, you have strong assurances about the chemical properties of gold that you know there's only going to be so much new gold found every year, and that the extant gold supply is not going to radically change. Um, the, the stock-to-flow ratio of gold would be fairly consistent over time. And so that applies to Bitcoin as well. Actually, with Bitcoin, the stock to flow ratio is fully is fully fixed, so you you know the stock to flow ahead of time. So that's that's what it means to be sound in terms of money, uh, you know, a known entity. Urbit very much takes the same approach, but to just a different category of thing, which is a computer. And so, what makes a computer sound? Uh, what does it mean to be able to audit? A computer, or uh, you know, be able to understand the exact rules by which a computer evolves or updates its state, and so these are very much the ideas that Erbit was created with, and and uh, perhaps the the objective of the URBIT computer itself. It's to be very simple that if you have a computer science background, you could understand the entire code base of Erbit. It's only 50,000 lines of code. It's within the abilities of a single person to know every aspect of the system. Not everyone would do that, of course, but someone could. you know. Whereas with a system like Unix, it's really far and away beyond the ability of any one person to be fully acquainted with every aspect of the system. So that Herbit is uh, sound computing really means that you you know what's in it it's also based on a a mathematical function that is strictly defined and you know that your orbit will only ever update itself or its state as per that function in a computing paradigm that we're currently in where all of the applications you use have extreme quantities of dependencies your Taking software from so many different places, compiling it into you know a collage essentially, urbit simplifies all that away and uh, gives you one one definition of computing that is knowable is auditable. Most computers need constant administration just to just to work. They need constant updates, etc. We'd like urbit to be good to take out of the bin that you put it into in 50 years and have it still run flawlessly. We're building this computer for the long haul, essentially.
1: One of the core tenets of uh, of the Bitcoin and yeah, we could say just the cypherpunk uh, perspective in general or culture in general is this uh, self-ownership, right? Or self-sovereignty. Yes. So... Bitcoin gave us that financially, but that requires essentially depending on hardware that is effectively owned by other people, owned in the sense that we don't know how it works, etc.
0: Right. So, Bitcoin brought to our collective conscious the fact that a server is an implement of sovereignty. And so, the Bitcoin blockchain is simply just a file that is hosted on a bitcoin full node and in that case a bitcoin full node is is just a server so erbit extends that same dynamic to all aspects of your digital life saying yes your money validating your money and the ownership of your of your funds is is one thing that you should be interested in uh Why not, while you're at it, extend it to your messages with people, your uh, posts on social media that are, you know, companies like Google mine for information about you as a consumer. Why wouldn't you want to reclaim ownership over your health data or your uh, your GPS history? Like all the places you go are stored by Google Maps. I mean – there's so much information about you that's being collected where you're simply just a line in their spreadsheet. Urbit says, you now realize that with a server, you can take back you know, control over your finances. While you're at it, take control over the rest. Take the rest of your social graph, your personal
1: correspondence, et cetera. And there's a sense in which, without control over the means of computing, you can't really be said to even be in control of your own Bitcoin. Right. Yes. The, the ethos is very much not
0: your keys, not your coins. And so there's, of course, varying degrees of, well, uh, you know, you have your keys, but they're on a hardware wallet. But when you, when you spend them, you're still using a node to transmit them to other full nodes uh, on the Bitcoin network. So there is still trust at other points in that equation. Uh, this is my rally call to Bitcoiners to say, you know, j- just as Urbit will benefit from digital sovereignty minded people coming on board to Urbit to develop Urbit and build it out into what it can truly be, you know, vice versa, Urbit can offer you a lot of things. Uh, I think that the thread of my Bitcoin work with Urbit is that I would like Urbit to give Bitcoin a better yet still sovereign
1: user experience. We continue the theme of self-sovereignty and user experience with next episode's guest, Logan Allen, who considers Erbit's effect on the way software is created today. Visit herbit.org forward slash install to get started. A Discord invite can be found at erbit.org and a Telegram channel at erbit.live.